and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, what I call the four I's, information, inputs, infrastructure, and insight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. So today's guest is a dear friend. Can I call you a dear friend? Yes. That's where we are. I'm honored. Yes. And a masterful writer who treats words with surgical precision and who is this fierce and fearless person named Megan Dom. Megan is never afraid to speak her mind, whether it's in her writings or in her podcast called The Unspeakable. She's a former LA Times columnist. She's written six books, the most recent being her 2019 book, The Problem With Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. But she doesn't just let her opinions be heard. She's also helping other women speak up. She's in the process of launching this exciting, quote, intellectual safe space called the Unspeakeasy for free thinking women to talk about things that sometimes are hard to talk about. Megan, I am thrilled to talk to you today. I'm so happy to be here, Lucy. Thank you. Where to begin? So as you and I were talking pre-hit record, I think there's some overlap between what you and I do, I would like to think. I've never been compared to a, a doctor, although you did say I had surgical precision. You have surgical so precision with words. That is awkward. your art. My craft is words as well. I mean, I don't cut people open. My job is founded on the relationship with the patient and communicating complex problems and questions and solutions and having a dialogue with my patient, my audience. So the way that I see you and I overlapping, if you will, is that we both are interested in excavating the gray the nuance, the stuff that is between, in my case, life and death. I mean, dying is bad, but so is not living. We need to figure out what is the stuff between birth and death. And I think that you do a beautiful job of talking about things that are sometimes hard to talk about with authenticity, honesty, and straight talk. And that's where I hopefully help patients is by not sugarcoating, euphemizing, putting a pretty bow around something that's hard and not falling prey to this narrative that we crave of victory over adversity, of redemption after struggle. I mean, let's be honest here. Life is really, really messy and hard and ugly. And I really appreciate your writing about life and people's stories in an honest, straightforward way. So that's my intro as to why you and I are separated at birth. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I do try to excavate. What did you say? The gray areas. Excavate the gray. The gray areas. Hashtag yeah. gray matters. I mean, that's why I got into this business. First of all, I'm really bad at everything else. My backup career was to be a professional oboist. This was the safe route. This Becoming a writer was like my version of going to medical school because the alternative was to be a classically trained oboist. I was always really interested in looking at the places in the culture where there were contradictions that people weren't recognizing and sort of seeing where the gulf was between what people were saying versus what they knew deep down to be true or what they felt versus what they thought they were supposed to feel. I think that's at a lot of the root of this. And I think you are speaking to that as well. You know, we go through life, especially in the West, in the U.S., with this idea that thinking positively is the healthiest choice all the time. And somehow if we allow negativity, which sometimes is really just complexity, right? Like if we allow any kind of complication into our consciousness, that that is somehow equivalent to thinking negatively. And then that is therefore unhealthy. I don't know whether it's healthy or not, but to me, it's interesting. And to be interested is to be engaged and therefore healthy, in my opinion. I totally agree. And I think that there's this 
concept, and you describe it beautifully in your book, The Unspeakable, which I read this summer, the way that human experiences, as you say, quote, too often come with pre-assigned emotional responses. Like, we're not supposed to feel guilt and shame or hostility towards a family member who's dying in the case of your mother, that we're supposed to feel a certain way. And if we don't, then there's something wrong with us. One of my least favorite expressions during residency, which was basically hell in a handbasket, was what does not kill you makes you stronger. And I had some pretty bad depression because I had my son in my residency. And you know, I wasn't stronger at all. And what does not kill you makes you stronger sort of sets you up for feeling like a loser if you're not stronger. When actually adversity isn't all good, right? Like adversity can certainly make you stronger. And I have grown from that experience over time. But I think it's important that we're honest and straight with people like I try to be with my patients and you try to be with your readers to give people permission, as I say, to not be okay. It's okay. And also it's human. We are complex organisms. We don't have three emotions, happy, sad, mad. We have a whole rainbow of feelings that are valid and that should be explored as we go through this life, which is hard and complicated. You know, my whole shtick is about mental and physical health. It's actually hopefully more than a shtick. It's my whole reputation. Anyway, it is. It's about- <laughs> I choose my doctors according to their shticks. Yeah, so the shtick. I, I, I would go to you in a second. Yeah. <laughs> my thing is that mental and physical health are inseparable. You can't opt out of having mental health. You have had, because you're a human being, experiences with your physical health and your mental health. So I'd love to explore those two things. I'd love to talk to you about your near-death experience in 2010. I'd also love to talk to you about what that meant to you and how it didn't automatically bring you this sort of new lease on life which I found refreshing. I read that op-ed you wrote in the New York Times, and that was so like, oh, thank God she wrote about this. It's sort of like my breast cancer patients don't always want to be called like survivors, right? They're like, I just have breast cancer, and it sucks. I'd also love to talk to you about your mental health, not because you're crazy, but because you're human, and your relationship with your mother, your relationship with your grandmother, your relationship with her death. Let's talk about your near-death experience. Let's talk about what happened. I mean, it sounds like you were a healthy walkie-talkie person, and it was 10 months after your mom died, 20 months after your grandmother died, and here you were. You described in your book that this might have been the morbid trifecta of like three women dying all at once. So tell me what happened. It's funny. This is actually an easier story to tell than a lot of the stories of my life just because it's sort of inherently dramatic and also... I was unconscious for most of it, so I don't have a kind of emotional overlay that makes it difficult to talk about. In a nutshell, yeah, I was walking around. Suddenly, I got what I thought was the flu. I had a fever. I was really achy, incredibly weak. I was living in California at the time, but I happened to be in New York City when I started feeling sick, and I didn't have a doctor there, of course. I don't think I had a doctor anywhere, by the way. I didn't have a general practitioner, for sure. So... Anyway, long story short, I ended up just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I went back to California and I still thought I had a horrible flu. I went to an urgent care clinic and they gave me fluids and they said, oh, you probably have the flu. They sent me home. I came back the next day, just absolutely terrible, dehydrated, like urine, the color of tea, you know, just dark. The whites of my eyes were turning yellow. My husband pointed this out to me. I I didn't even realize it. And next thing I knew, I was being taken to the hospital. They thought I maybe had hepatitis. And at that point, I was just so glad for any potential diagnosis. I was like, just don't make me get up. I said, I will go anywhere, but just let me stay lying down and keep me on this stretcher and take me wherever you want. But I literally cannot get up. I have vague memories of being admitted into the emergency room. And then I have vague memories of a doctor coming in and asking me some questions. He told me he was an infectious disease doctor. And then I remember having another conversation with him, I don't know, a few hours later, the next day. And he said, what kind of doctor did I say I was? And I said, oh, you're an epidemiologist. Like my mind was going, although I actually think in my defense that at the time I thought that epidemiologist and infectious disease doctor were the same thing. Like (laughs) they just had a like similar ring to them. I was incredibly thirsty. I was incredibly weak and I was starting to have aphasia. I couldn't get the words out of my mouth. Like I could hear them in my brain, but they weren't coming out. Like, I think I wrote that they were like slippery fish, like in my mouth, I couldn't catch them. 
that was pretty much the last thing I remember. And then I woke up what was apparently five or so days later, and I had been in a medically induced coma. I had had a cascade of things go wrong that you probably would understand more than I do. I go over them in the essay, but basically at the end of the day, they thought that I had any number of things. And then it turned out to be murine typhus which is a bacterial infection. It's an animal vector. So it was actually, I had been bitten by fleas. This is really, this is really sexy. I like to lead with this on first dates because it's really hot. So I had been bit by fleas that were like, this is so gross. So we were actually renting. Nothing um, is gross to me, by the way. Like really the, the grosser, gross. the better actually. So bring Okay. It. All right. So my husband and I, we had recently been married and we were between houses and we were renting this house and the yard wasn't very well kept. And so there were possums and tree rats. They carry these fleas that then get on the dog. We had a dog and then the dog's fleas got on my ankles. And so I had all these flea bites on my ankles that I was scratching and I would have had no way of connecting that somehow scratching these flea bites had resulted in my getting this bacterial infection. Now you um, have to realize that people listening right now are scratching their ankles, sitting now, in their backyards thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to be intubated for 11 right. days. It's so rare. The it fact is. that you're hearing me tell this story means that you will never get this. This is like the world according to Garp logic, right? It's like they go to look at the house to maybe buy and then a, a small plane crashes into the house and he says, that's it. I'll take it because the chances of another plane hitting this house again are next to none. So we're safe. I had encephalitis. I had just organ failure. I had something called, what is it called? I wrote Thrombocytopenia. You had really low platelets. That's right. But it's something called DIC, you right? DIC, Except where basically all the clotting proteins go bananas. That's not a medical word. It's a really, really dangerous. Yeah. It's really extraordinary what you went through. Disseminated intravascular coagulation. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And I've had a doctor say that they call that death is coming. The uh, acronym. So yeah, we don't usually tell yeah. patients that in the moment, but yes. Yeah. Somebody told me that later. So it had just gone completely out of control and partly because I didn't get treated soon enough. Frankly, I could have gotten doxycycline and nipped the whole thing in the bud, but they just didn't know what was going on. So yeah, it went into so your bloodstream. It landed you in the ICU. You were in restraints at one point because you're trying to tear out tubes. Apparently. And that's intense. And so I mean, I, yeah, yeah. And so what's interesting to me is the illness itself, the fact that you were so vulnerable and sick. I'm glad you're alive, by the way. Like the world would be less awesome Thank without you, you Megan Down. Oh, that's that's nice of you to say. Thank um you. sure. <laughs> but what's interesting to me about it is that you write about in your New York Times opinion piece that it wasn't this like transformational phenomenon where you all of a sudden had a new lease on life and all of a sudden you were kind of saving baby a new person and, and yeah, yeah, yeah like, no 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 I'm, I'm gonna have yeah exactly I'm gonna change my ways yes exactly so how did you deal with the paradox between the expectation of what you might have thought you should do or feel after you've almost died and what actually happened the strange thing with this is that it happened really fast I was extremely sick but I wasn't extremely sick the way like a cancer patient would be. I wasn't aware of anything that was going on. So what happened was like, I emerged from this coma and everyone around me had been through this incredibly traumatic experience because they thought not only that I might die, but that if I didn't die, that I could very easily have some kind of brain damage. You know, my husband, he talked later about how, frankly, his biggest fear at one point was not that I would die, but that I would be severely damaged, that I wouldn't die. And that he would be stuck with this brain damaged wife who he had married like only a year earlier. Mm. I had just put everybody through a terrible fright. And so when I emerged, they kind of were like, oh, wow, she really has no idea what happened here. And the restraint thing that you mentioned, you know, I remember lying in the hospital bed. I guess I had been awake for a couple of days by then. And I looked at my wrists and they were bruised. And I said to my husband something like, oh, that, that's weird that my wrists are bruised. Like, that must be from medication or something. Like, that must just be some weird side effect. And he was like, uh, yeah, no, you, yeah, no, <laughs> you, you were, you were tied to the bed because you were thrashing around. That whole situation was so unusual because it was a trauma that I sort of felt viscerally, but the actual details of it, they just kind of exist either through people telling me things that happened or in kind of flashback. Like I do remember talking to the doctor and having a conversation where I wasn't making any sense and I couldn't get the words out. But I remember when I was talking with him feeling like, oh my God, he must 
think that I'm really stupid. It was the feeling of being drunk and trying to act like you're not drunk, trying to play it off. And I was like, oh my God, I want to make a good impression on this guy. Like he's a doctor. (laughs) That's such an interesting phenomenon. People, I mean, that's so common. People come in and they want to put on their best face. They want to be at their trimmest. They want to Even in the emergency room. Oh yeah. People want to, yeah. People are like, want to put the best face on things. Not always. And it's not always on option. Right. But certainly I think it's unfortunate that patients feel in a position of having less power than the person caring for them when it actually should be a partnership. But that's a separate subject. Oh, yeah, it's hard, though, because you really you're absolutely at your worst. Yes. You talk about in your book about how suffering is not always transcendent and how it's not always pretty. It's not like you come away from something like that with this newfound sort of charitability towards other people and an abandoning of your neuroses and petty thoughts selfishness and and selfishness like that stuff stays with you right I mean it would be really handy and cute and write a nice book or maybe a nice meme on Instagram if it was like I nearly died and now I'm blank blank and blank and people put those memes out there all the time I'm gonna quit it all and become a freelance writer yeah it's like well no actually you already are that I don't see how you could get more reckless than the career state that you're already in I remember like I was getting better and people would come visit me in the hospital. And a couple of people said things like, wow, are you going to see your whole life differently now? I remember even thinking at the time, like, maybe, but I remember I sort of joked to a friend like, yeah, maybe for like a few weeks and then I'll go back to my old crappy ways. It seems to me ultimately that if you go through something like that, isn't the goal to be the same person? Like, isn't, you know, people say, I want to be a better person after this happened. But really, if you're going to get through quote unquote trauma, and that's a word I use loosely and that is overused. I mean, I have had probably experiences that are more traumatic than this illness. They're just like, it has manifested differently. But if you want to really survive a trauma, quote unquote, you would want to come out the same person you were. You want to be sort of unchanged by this or maybe just changed in subtle ways. But I worry when somebody emerges from something and they're like a completely different person with a totally different outlook. I don't know how you feel about that, but that seems to me like that would maybe be a red flag. I agree in a lot of ways. I mean, I've had Carrie Blakinger on my podcast and she was a heroin addict and a sex worker and incarcerated. And she came out of that and kind of rethought her life and is now advocating for prison reform. And that is sort of a transformation. But at the root of it, she's still the same person. Right. She's not trying to say, I'm now a better version of myself. Or I mean, she still has the addiction personality. She just is applying it to her writing. And I also think you're exactly right that what you and I talk about in our public facing work is about authenticity. And it would be weird to have a total personality change. I think you do get perspective, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes things just happen and you move on. In fact, it's interesting to hear you talk about how this is not the most traumatic thing that's happened to you and how changing personalities is a red flag (laughs) because that's a little bit of a good segue into talking about your relationship with your mom, if we can. Yes, yes, yes. Because that to me is, as you describe in your book, the trauma of that fraught relationship, I would imagine is maybe more traumatic and it, or just different trauma than having almost died. I don't know if my relationship with my mother in and of itself is or was a trauma, but her illness certainly is still the most difficult thing I've ever gone through yeah. in my life. And, you know, I've had an easy life. If somebody else's illness and death is the worst thing you've ever gone through, then that's a pretty, pretty easy life. I mean, everybody has parents and they're going to die. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I mean, you have perspective on things and you you have perspective on the good parts of your life and that you're not trying to play the victim at all here. But I mean, it sounds to me like the challenges between you and your mom and then her dying. Your book opens with an essay called Matricide. Yeah. About your mom. And I found it so interesting because, you know, let's face it, people are in therapy right this minute all over the world talking about their mothers. Like if it weren't for mothers, therapists probably wouldn't have much to do. And I'm a mother too. And my kids are going to be in therapy talking about me, I'm sure, any minute. But the point is, it was a fraught relationship. And then when she went through her illness, it only brought up more about the relationship in the first place, which to me seemed hard and complicated, at least. 
it's hard to talk about it. I mean, I don't mean it's hard emotionally to talk about. It's just sort of hard thematically to talk about still. The matricide piece, it was the first essay in in the book, The Unspeakable. And I should say, just to be clear, the the book, The Unspeakable, is not directly related to my podcast, The Unspeakable. My podcast is an interview show that somehow the word unspeakable has become my trademark in a way. But the book is a collection of, of essays. And the first one is this piece, Matricide. And I was really trying to sort of sort through what it was about the relationship with my mother that made it so hard to care for her in what would be widely perceived as a totally loving, all-encompassing way during her absolutely very brutal illness and death from gallbladder cancer. The defining relationship of her life was her relationship with her mother that is, no exaggeration, the most toxic relationship I've ever seen between two people in my whole life. It's hard to even say very much about her because I didn't really know her. My mother was so determined to define herself in opposition to everything about her own immediate family and her own background that she kind of just carved out this family life in our own little nuclear little family that was an island, actually. I knew my grandmother, obviously, but not particularly well. And we didn't spend a lot of time with her. And the time that we did spend was absolutely defined by my mother being so miserable and so upset and so angry and absolutely determined to be the opposite of this person. But the result of that was that my mother didn't really, I felt that she never sort of congealed as an authentic person, but that makes me really uncomfortable to say because I hear you. for starters, who am I to say that? I don't know. It's a pretty harsh statement. And it's also as untrue as it might be true. Like, how do we even define these things? Yes. At the same time, and I appreciate you're very, very honest about it in your book. And I think it's important for readers to read that honesty. You also have compassion for her. You have compassion for her inauthenticity or your perception of her inauthenticity. You talk about the seething rage you have towards her trying to kind of reinvent herself in her midlife. And then you talk about compassion and empathy towards that because you realize, like I do, how hard it is to live a life that isn't authentic. I don't come away reading that matricide essay thinking, wow, what a jerk. I think, (laughs) wow, so honest. That's why I think you're an important writer and why I appreciate what you do, Megan. And I'm not just trying to blow smoke up your ass. I mean it because I think that when someone is dying, we're supposed to be like, as you said to outsiders at the time, kind of wrapping this person in love and making these memories and telling people on the email string that it was this magical time and she yes. waited to die the day after Christmas because she wanted Christmas to be together when actually like it was really messy and shitty in a lot of ways. Yes, and I think that's, literally. And yes, I think that's exactly. like literally. And I think that's important to talk about. I do. There was a moment, and I write about this in the piece, where the oncologist came in to really like give her the final news that the treatments were not working and that to get her affairs in order kind of thing. And she was in the hospital and I was sitting by the bed and my mother and I, we didn't touch each other a lot. That just wasn't the kind of relationship that we had. But I remember being so conscious of the medical team like judging us as a family. And so when the doctor came in, I remember taking my mother's hand and holding her hand as she was being given this news. It was so awkward. And I'm sure my mother resented it. But also if I hadn't done it, she would have resented it because she would have been embarrassed in front of the doctor that her daughter was not playing the role of the daughter that one would want. And so I felt that like, It would have been betraying my mother not to take her hand, but at the same time taking it felt not authentic at all. And that was a slap in the face. Like that sort of moment encapsulated so many moments that we had during the course of not only her illness, but frankly, her life. Like we had roles to perform in the family. A lot of performance I can see in your writing. A lot of posturing and doing things the way you think you're supposed to do instead of how you actually feel. I think it would be surprising to have a relationship like that with someone in your life, like your mother, and then to have a total flip switch at the end of her life. That to me would be inauthentic to kind of have this change. Although it's important for me to be clear and for you to be clear as you have that love is love and love is just complicated. Like it doesn't mean that you don't love someone. I think it's important to recognize that we can have many emotions at once. We're not one trick ponies. And I think what's important is that we identify all those different feelings 
it's not so tidy as someone dying cleans up all the emotional stuff that we've been living through our whole lives with that person. Especially when you're dealing with somebody in the hospital, like a parent who is sick, this still blows my mind. The sort of care work that adult children do for their parents, that was just never, ever going to be on the menu in our family. And I'm still blown away when I hear stories of even adult children who have horrible relationships with their parents, being able to do things like bathe a very sick parent or touch them in a certain way or just have a kind of intimacy, changing an adult diaper. That was just never, ever, ever something I was going to do. And I told myself that I wasn't going to do it out of respect for my mother because she wouldn't want it. But then I also, to this day, I walk around beating myself up for not being able to have done it. I mean, we hired somebody to do it. Don't get me wrong. It's not like it wasn't being done, but I'm really never going to get over the guilt that came out of that relationship. And not that I'm recommending guilt as a way to live your life, but well, it it's does really work for me thus far. So, yeah. <laughs> it's working for you. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's emblematic of your empathy and compassion and love for your mother, despite your fraught relationship. And I think it sounds like you were trying to preserve her dignity in many ways and also yeah. be authentic to your relationship. You know, that moment when you're trying to hold her hand, it reminds me of like being at the movies with your new boyfriend in, <laughs> in, right. in middle he school. Really and it's like, it's like yeah, cold exactly. and wet and awkward. And it's funny to think of it. This is funny, but I, I just love that story you told, Megan, where your mom is at the end of her life. She's in a hospital bed in her own apartment and the hospice nurse is there and you and your brother were cleaning out her apartment, like taking the books off the shelves, like packing oh, up yeah. her apartment in front of her. And I love it because it's so honest and it was just a practical thing. It's not like you were trying to hasten her death. It's that you had rent to pay that was super expensive. Yeah. She couldn't barely pay it herself. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so you're just being practical. But it's just one of those moments that I think a lot of people can relate to where you're sort of doing something that feels like you're not, quote, supposed to be doing it. She wasn't really aware of it e either. No, and my mother actually loved moving and she loved packing up. And she this is something she and I had in common. We absolutely loved real estate and the idea of moving and starting over. So I, I'd like to think she would have been all for it, you know. And so. you were thinking to yourself, this woman who's watching us pack up thinks I'm just like the worst person alive. Yes. And it's it has nothing to do with your character or your genuine concern for your mother. It's just that we can have practical instincts and emotion at the same time. I understand why, you know, you and I have talked about how it's it's hard to write about a mom. I mean, talking about the unspeakable is still hard, even if it's honest and authentic and it's straight. Yeah. And that's why we write, right? Because you have control over the story. There are things I wrote in that piece. Well, probably every single thing I wrote in that essay that I would never have tried to articulate in one of those email blasts to the friends and family, keeping them updated on my mother's illness. Like I would never have tried to have this in a casual conversation. And so that's really why writing is so important because you are being vulnerable, but at the same time, it's kind of a trick because you're absolutely controlling what you're showing and it becomes something that you own. The piece of writing becomes a separate entity from the experience, but then the entity becomes like the thing you end up talking about. It's interesting because we're talking about the piece more than we're talking about what actually happened. And it's easy to get those things confused. Like, you know, I'd much rather talk about the piece than what happened. So once again, back to my shtick as a doctor. So I believe that our stories live in our bodies. And I believe that, you know, people are the integrated sum of different components. You know, modern medicine would like to think that people are just the sum total of their blood sugar and their weight and their cholesterol. And doctors say, oh, look, you're not dying. Good job. Keep eating well, exercising and see you next year. When actually health is in the gray. Health is in our everyday experiences. It's how we feel in our bodies. It's our sense of agency. So I was trying to describe to you before we came on, and I'll, I'll try to do it now and see how you slot into these different parts, if you will. I think about patients as the integrated sum of different components what I call the four eyes. Think about a two by two square. So the top left corner is the first eye, which is information. So your medical data. So when you were in the hospital, Megan, it was like your blood cultures, the results of your CT of your brain, you know, anything you can measure. And in my world, in the outpatient world, it's, you know, measuring people's mammogram, measuring their cholesterol and their blood type and their kidney function, liver function, et cetera. 
So that's top left corner, information. The top right corner is inputs. So everything you put in your body from kale and quinoa to cigarettes, marijuana, heroin, whatever food groups float your boat. The bottom right corner is infrastructure, your skeleton. I mean, literally your body mechanics, the vehicle you drive through life. You cannot trade in your skeleton like you can your Honda or your Prius or your Lexus, depending on your politics. Uh, (laughs) So you have to maintain skeletal health because exercise and movement is important for functioning. It's also important for health. And then the bottom right corner is insight. And that's where you, I mean, you shine in all the other quadrants, but you have a ton of insight. And insight is really mental health because we all have mental health. So insight is your awareness of your anxiety, moods, relationship with food, relationship with alcohol, relationship with the recreational drugs you're using, relationship with mothers, your own body. To me, I I see myself as the sort of chief medical officer of patients, someone who's looking at all the different quadrants and seeing how they interconnect and then helping people understand for themselves how their, for example, depression is driving their stress-related eating, which is then driving their blood sugar and cholesterol up. My job is then to not just treat their cholesterol with Lipitor, but also to treat their depression. And so it goes. So one of the chapters in your book, if we go to the input section, you talk about food and Mm -hmm. how you hate food. (laughs) And I loved it because I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, everybody fits into this grid. Obviously people are more than just a grid, right? Like it's a construct, but it's a simple graphic way of explaining to people like sort of how we might help give them agency over their own health. You talk about, I hate food. It's so interesting. You're like, I mean, well, obviously, I don't hate food. You can take a, you know, it's. Oh no, I, uh, you I, I eat plenty of it. Well, but, but yeah. it's a, but it's a, it's a, you eat plenty of it. You don't have an eating disorder, clearly. But you also talk about like it's a great opening sentence for a chapter. It draws you in because I think it's fair to say that the relationship with food for a lot of people is very complicated, and you need to eat to survive. But you don't take joy in like cooking or i mean your description of it no is and so i feel very guilty funny. about this i feel very a lot huh. of shame around this okay yeah. t- t- tell me well my mother was a horrible cook and then i think there was just a lot of misery around the dinner table every night partly because she was such an unenthusiastic cook and she was always hung up about her own weight and everything and my younger brother was this like incredibly picky eater so it would just be this like struggle session every single just sitting there like will you eat this and like eat this eat this pea you know I'm gonna make you like I remember like swallowing peas as if they were pills like as, as a way to you know just like eat our peas there was just no joy in it and this wasn't passed down and you know there was a lot of like obsession with trying to go out we would love to go to restaurants because then everybody could get their own thing and we wouldn't have to like deal with my mother's cooking I guess that's really no excuse I mean plenty of people have unenthusiastic cooks for mothers and they grow up to be gourmets so I I don't know I just well I I think what's interesting about it it is that it I mean it was sort of like food was like transactional and then yeah that's a good way of putting it and that it it was like you you knew you had to eat but there was no joy in it what's interesting to me about it is that how the roots of our relationships with food are laid down often in childhood because when else do we start eating and then the relationship with food whether it's thought of as a transactional phenomenon or a place of comfort, you know, for a lot of families, like food is love, right? Food is like eat more. And if you don't eat more, then that's a rejection of my love for you, right? So (laughs) all of those feelings come into play. I mean, this is the stuff I talk about with people in my office because they're trying to decouple the relationship with food with food itself when they're trying to manage their diabetes or their binge eating or their gluten sensitivity, whatever issue people are dealing with. The point is that it's not just about food. It's about the relationship. And so I guess my question to you is, so how does that inform how you eat now? Your inputs? Food is hate, perhaps. I don't know. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, we definitely did not have that kind of eat more, otherwise you're insulting me kind of thing at all. I'm very ashamed that I can't cook. And so I try to just sort of avoid it. Like, it's funny because I love to entertain and I love to have people over and I love to connect people and I love my house. You know what I think actually, and I'm not skirting your question here. I'll promise I'll come back to this. I think that my mother's version of 
eat more, eat more was come into my home and enjoy the atmosphere mm. because she had a wonderful sense of design. She's incredible eye, like she had great taste. So she always made a beautiful home aesthetically. And I am a hundred percent like that. I care so much more about setting the table than what's on the plates. It's so funny. We're a bit the same way. Like I am a pretty bad cook. I just don't put energy into it because I just don't. My mom is a fantastic cook, like beyond fantastic and an incredible entertainer. I love entertaining. We love having friends over, but I, but the cooking part is not my forte. Yeah. And there's like a little bit of shame about it. Oh yeah. And it makes me so anxious because I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to poison them. I teach these writing workshops and for several years I was teaching them in my apartment. And one of the things is I would give people, they would have lunch and they would have these sort of fancy meals, whatever. This is a boring story. But I remember teaching this like really intensive class that was going on two full days for a whole weekend and everybody was really into it and they were loving it and they were super charged up and we were having these great conversations. And I was like in the back of my head saying, oh my God, I'm afraid that they got poisoned by the salad dressing. <laughs> the salad dressing is poisoning them. They're going to go home and one of them's going to be sick and I'm going to be in a hospital and it's going to be because of the salad dressing, because I took it out of the fridge and I took the wrong one. Like I meant it to, I had a new one, but I took the old one that's been sitting in the fridge. for. Blah, 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 blah. I was just spinning with this for hours to trying to teach this writing class. It's so reassuring because that, I feel the same way. I'll like, I'll think, oh my gosh, everyone's over here. That's at my house. And it's this beautiful night. And, you know, everyone's enjoying cheese and crackers, which, you know, first of all, how bad can that be? And then you're like waiting <laughs> for the food to come on. And you're like, oh my God, the chicken is like a, the sole of a shoe. It's so tough and it's awful. And, <laughs> and they're going to be poisoned. I'm afraid I'm going to kill people. Talk about being canceled. It's like, wow, not only was she this problematic writer, she killed people at her <laughs> dinner party. She poisoned them. It's really messed up. So I actually like to order. I, I love to host. So I, I do this thing called Faustusing, like F-A-U-X. Yes, yeah, so I coined this uh, Faustusing. So I will be a faux cook. So I will bring food in either like from the outside or whatever. And I will put it in containers and serving dishes as if I cooked it. I won't lie or anything, but the the presentation will suggest that I cooked it. I think what it speaks to is that people really do want to come for the company and the conversation. I mean, anybody who's coming to my house just for the food, like, first of all, like, you're going to be disappointed. And second of all, that's not really the reason for congregating in the first place. I have a group of friends, my high school friends, we have this dinner thing every couple of months, and we call it no frills. If you're hosting, you're not allowed to cook. If you do, if you look nice, like if you have like eyeliner on, <laughs> or you have, if you look like you put in any effort, and you cook and it's like attractive, you are punished. In other words, oh. you have to order pizza and come as you are because that's what people want and they don't right. want the pressure. So I think, again, in the spirit of being honest with ourselves, let's just be honest that, yeah, I love good food. I mean, I love food. I love good food. I'm not able to cook it. And so I'm just going to own it and not apologize for it. And, and I'm saying that out yeah. loud because I hope that I can continue to feel that way. Yeah. And, but does your husband cook or does someone else in your eh, house cook? He, he does actually. He, well, he ha kind of has to out of necessity. I mean, he makes chili and he makes, he's good on the grill, like a lot of guys. He's pretty good actually. But I grew up in a house where I really admire this about my mom, but like if you had the ketchup bottle on the table or like the mustard jar on the table, oh, the horror. Totally. And it wasn't oh, snobby. No, no. It, just was, it, it wasn't a snobby thing. It was just elegant. Anyway, I have different domestic skills. And as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, what are they? But anyway, I, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm running through the list. I'm like, what am I good at at home? You know, I think I'm a pretty good parent. I think I do the dishes pretty well. I take the trash out. I walk the dog. I love taking the trash out. I don't know why they say that's gendered because taking the trash out is my favorite thing. I like so getting I'm, rid of things. Maybe that's it. I'm the opposite of a hoarder. I love throwing things out. Oh my God. I love throwing things out too. I, my kids get so mad at me because they're like, mom, that was like my Chipotle that I just ordered and I had one bite, you know? Oh, I've thrown out like money just because I'm like, <laughs> I can't do it. Like, you know, I'm just going to knock the contents of this desk into the trash and take it out. Yeah. No, yeah. Getting rid of things. It's bad. like a fresh start. Okay. So we talked about your inputs. We've talked about your insight. I mean, you have great insight about your own emotional health and your own mental health, which is a moving target, right? Not just for you. <laughs> I've got some blind spots. Uh, I think I've pretty clearly, but that's nice of you to say. I mean, <laughs> let's acknowledge that we all have anxieties. We all have moods. We all have relationships with food, alcohol, each other with stress. 
what are the things you work on in terms of your mental health? What are the things that you consciously mm. or unconsciously are working on in the inside mental health department? Is it anxiety? Is it fear? Yeah. Is it moodiness? Is it having routines around sleep and exercise? Like, yeah. What is it? It's especially in the last several years, it's anxiety bordering on fear with respect to my professional life. Mm -hmm. My overall actually situation, I'm very amicably divorced. I was very lucky. I mean, I'm still friends with my ex, so nothing bad there. But the fact is I'm a freelance writer. I'm self-employed. I don't have any family. I have a brother, but my parents are both passed away for reasons that I alluded to earlier. We don't have really any contact with extended family. I'm very much alone in the world and I don't have a safety net at all. I didn't inherit any money. I am trying to make it as a creative person. I was really lucky for a lot of decades. I had a good career. I had publishing contracts. I had agents. And so for reasons that I've talked a lot about on my podcast, the creative economy is such now that we've had to pivot. I mean, we have, we're all doing this. So I'm doing a lot of podcasting now, but I am having to make a gigantic kind of change in the professional structure of my life. And that's caused a great deal of economic insecurity. I haven't been settled in a like a permanent home for several years. I've been kind of living back and forth. I have to manage a lot of anxiety around that. Yeah. And that's real and that is rooted in reality. And it's again to say that we all have anxiety. If we didn't have anxiety, we wouldn't be alive. It's a question of degree and it's a question of what does it stick to and how much of anxiety that's rooted in reality is informing your everyday health and well-being you know, you don't have control over the fact that the literary industry has been totally deconstructed and changed during your lifetime. You don't have control over what people want to hear and listen to and read. How do you exert control if you can over that sort of anxiety and vulnerability that you have? Like, what are the tools you use to manage the part of it that you do have control over? Because you don't have control over the economy or the literary scene. I was probably drinking too much wine. I can tell you that. Like, especially during the pandemic, at the end of the day, I would reward myself by having like a glass or two of wine. And it was because I didn't want to deal with my totally. fears. So many people, and I would include myself in this as well, were drinking more during the pandemic yeah. in particular. It's a lot easier to drink a glass of wine and sort of have a channel change in your mind than it is to like take a walk and write in a journal and meditate. I mean, it's a quick and easy way to separate the day from the night and to give yourself a break. It's so much easier. The problem is it bites you in the ass. It interferes with your sleep. You know, all the things we know about alcohol, but that's so normal. And you have an awareness of it. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that their drinking habit or routine has anything to do with. Oh, I knew I was doing it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, so you're... It was one of those things, I mean, it was one of those things like, okay, like this is not sustainable, but I'm not going to stop right now. Like just, no, let me get through this little period here. But yeah, it was interesting. So yeah, I've actually, I'm experimenting. I haven't drank at all. I've stopped totally. Um, oh, have you? And I've had to like, uh, I mean, it's not a huge deal. I just like, it's like my little summer experiment. That's but, interesting. Um, I should probably yeah. join you probably like you, not because I think I have a drinking problem, but because I feel so much better when I don't drink. And I think it's easier in a way not to discredit your triumph over alcohol this summer, but it's easier <laughs> to put a fence around it and say, I'm not having any to be absent oh, yeah, totally. than it is to moderate it especially with alcohol, which in itself alters our judgment. So you have one, you're like, oh, it's right. Friday night, what's two, what's three? It's interesting that you're doing the absence thing when you're like not an absolutist. But I think there's a time and a place. I just think it's easier because otherwise yeah. it's just a struggle session. I mean, you so know, what are you doing to replace to it? So what, this is the question. <laughs> I think it's I think it's also hard to quit drinking permanently or temporarily if you don't replace it with something else that, I know. that does the job of especially if you're working from home, right? That separates workday from not yeah. workday. What do you do instead? I've definitely tried to like take the dog out for walks, but I'm also living in a place where it's very, very hot and it's summer. So I can't take the dog out until like after dark because it's just too warm otherwise. So I do that. I have to say, and I don't want to overplay this. I mean, this is not like some grand, you know, I'm sober now. This is not, <laughs> no, it I, don't, was, I don't think you're saying it that way. Like, um... I don't think that I was as aware of the degree of fear that I have about my situation until I took that layer away. And it's like, wow, you've actually been in a kind of perilous situation. 
that's so healthy <laughs> and painful. And that's exactly the stuff, right? If you take away the thing you're doing to kind of numb out uncomfortable feelings, and again, you're not an alcoholic, you're not like off the rails. It's just if you take away the thing that we gravitate to, whether it's your sort of addiction to Twitter or social media, like I really have a problem with it and I'm trying to be better about it. For what it's worth, I do not see you uh, acting out on Twitter. I, I don't. Oh, no, so I'm not acting out on Twitter. Be, this may be in your mind. I'm uh, not acting out on Twitter, but I'm on social media a lot. I use it like a lot of people do as a way to take a break, like a brain rest, right? Like I'll get in my bed after I come home from work and just like zone out. Not like under the covers with like macabre right. music playing in the background. I'm just saying I'll sit on my bed and like just zone out or sit on the couch and zone out. And like an hour will pass. I've realized how much I use it to kind of zone out and numb out. And sometimes it's because I just need a break. And sometimes it's because I'm avoiding unpleasant feelings. By doing the most unpleasant thing you could possibly do, which is look at Twitter. Right. I mean, it is nothing but a barrage of unpleasant feelings. Yeah, totally. Although I also look at TikTok and Instagram and I look at these, uh, I, lo I look at cat videos, like cats hanging from ceiling fans and like, I mean, I just, I'm obsessed with like weird cat videos. Oh. <laughs> anyway, the point is that like social media, whether it's drinking, whether it's having some other habit that you wish you didn't have. I think a lot of it is avoidance of unpleasant feelings. And it sounds like you have, like many people need to do, when you take it away, then you can really confront the stuff that's under there, which is the fear, the vulnerability you're experiencing. But then what do you do with that? It's like, okay, well, I see that it's here. And uh, yes, no. That's it. That's the question. What do you do with it? Because you could binge eat, you could starve, you could keep drinking, you could watch more cat videos, or you could actually process the feelings and fact check them as a first step. So fact checking. Because we have these stories in our minds, as you know, like, I'm never going to be successful. I'm, these are not your words necessarily, but I'm unlovable. I am a useless person. I can't do this. And so we have yeah. these narratives in our mind that stoke fear that we have to fact check. Like, what's the evidence that I'm unlovable or I'm not successful? You, so you have to fact check it. And then when you do fact check it and you're like, oh, well, sh that's true. Then you have to, then you have to like, yeah. shoot, I am unlovable. Shoot, I am a terrible person. Then you have to soothe your own head and heart and have compassion and empathy for yourself and give yourself grace and patience and space to have unpleasant feelings and not come right. cover them up and not numb them. It's easier said than done, though. Why do you think we live in a world where people use recreational drugs, alcohol? There's a pornography industry that helps people escape from their mundane or unpleasant lives. We're escapists. We don't want the straight talk that we should give ourselves. We don't want it. We'd rather avoid. Well, I also think it allows you to tell yourself a story that you are very strong and independent. Mm -hmm. So if you can numb out and not need anybody, not pick up the phone and call your friend or not sit in your car crying or just kind of be a stoic in your mind. That's a really nice story to be able to tell about yourself. Like, I don't need anybody. But part of the reason for that is because you're numbing yourself. Then you might want to rethink that. I think that's so it's true. Very, very seductive kind of self-image to have, though. Yeah. And that's where I think you do a good job and where I try to help my patients and where I help, I try to do this with myself. I mean, I'd be a real asshole if I didn't try to do this with myself is like look in the mirror and face unpleasant realities about ourselves and be honest with ourselves and say, look, I have anger about this. And the way I manifest it is sometimes passive aggressive or I get too angry. I think it's hard to be honest with ourselves. And I think that's the stuff of health. I think people don't necessarily recognize that that is health too, is an honesty and authenticity with ourselves because it's painful and it's hard. It's much easier to slug back rosé. By the way, it's Friday night, everybody, so I might actually have some rosé, but yeah, um, which is fine, right? It's like it's the Gatorade of the Hamptons. Oh I always my said, God, so, that's yes, hilarious. Yes, love it. Okay. I'm taking that. I'm tucking that away. <laughs> And it's okay. Like you can have rosé and still be self-aware. I'm telling myself this right now. The point is, I think it's hard to be human. And I think it's hard to face unpleasant truths about ourselves. And I think it's hard to acknowledge the emotional and behavioral manifestations of unpleasant thoughts and feelings. But the path forward to health is in that excavation of the unpleasant and the unspeakable, if you will. And I think you do that in your book. I think that you do that in your writing. 
It's so funny that you put it that way. I mean, and it's absolutely correct the way you put it. And I would add that I think that there is an aspect of our culture that equates not having any negative feelings with having, quote, done the work and growing to a point where you're just so self-actualized all the time. And because you meditate and because you are vegan and now you're an Instagram influencer and you have your meditation app, whatever it is, you've evolved. So that somehow being evolved means not having any discomfort. Now I'm being really reductive because I think smart people who meditate and talk about that would say that you have to go through discomfort all the time, that that's not the case at all. But I think that there is this kind of pop culture influencer ecosystem that really sells this idea that if you do all these things, that the end goal is to feel good most of, if not all of the time. Amen. Hallelujah. 100%. I agree with you. And I think it's a myth that we're ever done. Right. It's a myth that you can be evolved and then you can look outward and then have it all figured out. I mean, I think it's a process. And I think also sometimes people are pursuing self-actualization in an inauthentic way. That's what kills me about the wellness industry. And I <laughs> welcome the concept of wellness, right? Like, Duh. But what I don't love about the wellness industry is that I think it accidentally steers people away from facing hard things about their internal world, their interiority. In other words, yeah. I think the wellness industry is often selling people this bag of tricks like from yoga and meditation, which, by the way, are wonderful things as necessary and sufficient for health. Right. Whereas, you know, yoga and meditation and eating a healthy diet, those are certainly important, but they are not sufficient for health. You can be a raging asshole. You can be an angry, unhappy person and be a great yogi. <laughs> yes, and mean, they've, they've made lots of money. I think we, can, we, we know who they are. The wellness industry really rubs me the wrong way in the sense that it's trying to act like there's an endpoint or there's a set of tools that if only you use these things, then you would be a better person. There's a bit of a moralist. Yeah. And that's about branding. I mean, that's yes. the thing is that we've also have these generations coming up for them. Creating is creating a brand. Right. And like for us, like we're Generation X, like having a brand was anathema. That was just like the last thing you were supposed to do if you were an intellectual or a creative person or just any sort of like person with integrity. But now monetizing your interest is the name of the game. Like that actually is a form of self-actualization. So it makes perfect sense that the wellness industry is an industry, that wellness is an industry. Yeah as a product. Wellness to me isn't about a widget or a product. It's about insight, awareness, acceptance, and then having agency to work on the things that you can control in your life, whether yeah. it's a relationship with food or alcohol or Instagram. That's why the term life hack drives me crazy. Oh, tell me. Oh, I just think it's like, here's a life hack. And they'll say like, oh, you know, order in or something. <laughs> like it's just a life hack. They market it as like they're giving you some sort of industry tip or right. some sort of insider tip that only they know. It really is just like a way of being more efficient or trimming the fat of your schedule or something like that. I just, I don't know. There's really no such thing as a life hack. I mean, everybody has their own ways of coping with stress or being healthier, but I guess the point is there's no one size fits all prescription for how to live. And the idea that it, there's this sort of like secret sauce that you can sell is ridiculous. That's what we're talking about is nuance. We're talking about rejecting absolutism and rejecting this notion that there's a one size fits all prescription for how to live and right. rejecting this notion that if you just do these five things, you will be healthier, happier, and then a morally superior person. <laughs> Because we're all works in progress and we're never done. One of my patients who's 92 just bought a new car. And I thought wow. that was so awesome. And it was such a metaphor to me. I'm such a metaphor person. Not only is she optimistic that she's going to live long enough to enjoy it, but that you can always learn new things, right? We're not too old. You can always be healthier, happier, less anxious, less self-deprecating, less guilt-ridden at any age. Well, that's encouraging. If I can get rid of my guilt by the time I'm 92, I'll be ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah, guilt is such a tough emotion. So guilt, shame, and fear are the sort of trifecta of 
unpleasant emotions that drive so much of our behaviors, when we can acknowledge what the roots of those things are and what the triggers are for those feelings and then sort of try to exert control over how we behave in response to them, it can be really productive. But that's hard work. Much easier to have a glass of wine. Yes. And then you can feel guilt and shame about that. Absolutely. So that's it's a like, yeah, it's, it's, it is a, it's a salad bar, an all-you-can-eat buffet of guilt. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. So anything else you wanted to talk about before I let you go? I want to make sure I mention my project that I'm so excited Please, about. Please, let's that, talk that, about that, it. That you are going to be part of, too. Yes, um, I'm thrilled. The, the unspeakeasy. So yes, I know I was talking about how much terror I feel about my professional situation and everything. But the fact is that I'm more excited than I am terrified because I am creating this community for free thinking women. So I don't know if you are familiar with this term heterodox. So it just has to do with questioning groupthink or questioning orthodoxy. And what we're seeing now in the media is a lot of people who are very much liberals and who have always identified as being on the left, suddenly starting to think like, maybe we have more questions to ask about COVID policy or gender ideology or gun rights, whatever it is, any number of things, me too, you name it, cancel culture, all this stuff. I feel like a lot of the discussion around these issues is being controlled by men. There are more male podcasters talking about it. Their audiences tend to be more men. And as a podcaster who's been talking about this stuff on my show, The Unspeakable, for two years, I cannot tell you how many women I hear from who call me, they email me, and they say, thank you for talking about these things, because I feel like if I try to bring up these subjects around my female friends, my book club, whatever Facebook group, my mom group, that I will get cast out of the group. And I think that women are just more reluctant to speak up because we don't like the social penalties that come along with doing so. So I'm creating this community. It will live online as well as offline, and it will be a place for women to just come together and have very intellectually authentic and rigorous conversations about any number of subjects. So that's going to be online, but we're also going to have retreats and we're going to have ideas vacations and we're going to go and talk about stuff. And I've gotten a ton of interest and signups so far. So I had a little test balloon. I took a bunch of women out to the desert here in uh, California and you zoomed in as a guest. So that was great fun. Like during COVID, I had so many people write me, doctors, public health people saying, thank you so much for saying out loud what we've been thinking, that there's no kind of right or wrong here. It's in the gray. And I fear sort of personal or professional repercussions if I was to speak against the kind right. of popular narrative. And so that's what you're doing here is the exploration, the excavation of ideas that gets lost on social media and talking in a more nuanced way about interesting, challenging cultural topics that get lost in false dichotomies and that are fed by the algorithms of Twitter. What's interesting also is that you as a person, Megan, are addressing fear and vulnerability with action and with community. Yeah. Whether you know it or not, that's a way of coping. I mean, it's creating the community that you want, picking your family and picking mm. who you want to spend emotional energy with and being excited about it instead of being afraid and vulnerable because we're always going to be afraid and vulnerable. So you're just grabbing the bull by the horns and making it happen. I love it. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many people feel this way. This is one of these things where the emperor really has no clothes. Everybody's afraid to speak out because they think that nobody will agree with them. But the fact is, most people probably do agree with you deep down. So we just need to find each other. We do. And I think shared vulnerability is the birthplace of community. And if we can talk about hard things, honestly and authentically, without judgment and shame... I mean, bring it. You are creating something that I think is going to be wildly successful and I can't wait to see it grow. And I can't wait to show up at one of these retreats. And like, I don't know, I picture myself with like a group of women talking about cool things. And then the afternoon I have like cucumbers on my eyeballs and like a towel on my head and like some sort of combination of like relaxation and intellectual stimulation. Yeah. I'm hoping to do them all over the world. I mean, I have hundreds of women on the mailing list and they're suggesting places to have retreats. And it's like, 
everything from France to Australia, all over the world. Oh yeah, no, I think this could be, um, we're going to be big. Yeah. I'm doing a couple on the East coast this fall, but who knows where we'll be in a few years. It'll be a, a global phenomenon, perhaps. If you make it, they will come. Yes. Megan, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're awesome. And I'm sure I will be in touch with you soon about various topics. All right. I adore you, Lucy. I always love talking with you. So anytime. You're the best. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.